you can go into a brewery and try a bunch of interesting things on tap. They'll take that feedback. They'll do that form of consumer research. And then the one that gets the greatest response, cool, we'll launch that as a seasonal and then maybe it can becomes a core product. And there's just a feedback loop with consumers that companies like General Mills or Pepsi or even Nestle pay hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year doing consumer research just to try to understand the consumer. Yet we have these D2C CPG brands that know their consumer so well. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. It's better products, better brands, better leadership for a better world. Thanks to you, our listeners, this podcast is now ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally. Let's not stop there, though. If you like our show, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review and share your favorite episodes with your network. The more people we reach, the more good we can bring about in this world. If you work in the industry, you can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Fred Hart, creative director and partner of Interact, about how his love of sneakers led him to the CPG industry, how strategic design can help brands connect with their consumers to sell more products, and some of the current design trends in the CPG market. Gage, thanks for having me on. It's really fun to talk with a fellow creative today. My name is Fred Hart. I'm a partner and creative director at Interact. We're a branding and design agency with offices in Boulder and Austin, Texas that work predominantly with food and beverage companies, um, helping to reshape the future of retail. So it's great to have, great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. I have lots of these interviews, but rarely get to actually geek out with a fellow creative professional. So this will be fun. And, you know, we're both in branding, of course. Some of the other creative professionals I bring on are in like PR or marketing or something like that. But we're both in branding and we're both kind of geeking out in the CPG industry, obviously, since we're on this show. But I'm just super curious to hear what drew you into branding and CPG. Well, branding in general, I was always attracted to um, design as my way in. I didn't really know that design was a sort of a, a toolkit of branding. And, and growing up, I played a lot of basketball and still do and actually fell in love with uh, the design of sneakers and shoes. And that was my path into getting into graphic design and then graphic design to packaging and then packaging to branding and all things food and bath. So it's been... Um, for some people, it feels like a straight and narrow path of always being involved in the arts, but there are so many utilizations of graphic design that I'm really happy that I've went in this branding arena. Well, speaking of design and shoes, did you happen to follow the work of Matt Stevens? I forget how long ago he did this, but he did a whole kind of personal project where he did all these illustrations of a bunch of different Nike shoes yep. or something yep, like that yep, and yep. then published a book on it. <laughs> I had thought about Matt Stevens in a long time, but big fan of him. You know, Tinker Hatfield, acclaimed Jordan designer. And I think he has an episode on Abstract, the Netflix series, which was a real joy to watch. Nice. That's cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm a big geek on CPG kind of industry stuff because I just, A, love food, but then also like it's so much fun to work on something that then you kind of stumble across in a grocery store or friends can kind of stumble across it. 
And then you can buy it, interact with it, and then eat it, <laughs> which is, you know, the best of all, all worlds. So I love this industry, but I also feel like part of the reason behind this podcast is that if we can change the CPG industry, we can change the world because there's so much that the kind of CPG world interacts with in terms of like manufacturing and agriculture and shipping, logistics, e-commerce, consumerism, like all sorts of stuff. So it's a fun space to be in. Yeah. Design has a big influence on a lot of things, not just consumer behavior, but design thinking in large part, uh, impacting the way that our clients think about some of their businesses and some of their choices can have profound benefits to other parts of their, their company, not just what consumers see. Yeah, totally. Okay. So I know that you've done a little bit of teaching through CU Boulder and some mentoring and stuff. I noticed that you've gone, done some mentoring with SKU, the kind of accelerator incubator yep. program down, I think, which is in Austin and then Food Marketing Institute and a group called Endeavor. So can you talk a little bit about how slash why you got into mentoring and maybe talk about some of your work through those programs? Yes. Well, one, Interact is really passionate about working with entrepreneurs, tastemakers, visionaries, people that are really looking to disrupt the status quo. And so we have a long history of, of working very closely with those types of people and improving and building their brands, particularly in retail where it's a competitive landscape. So we've been fortunate to be invited to talk with other entrepreneurs because of how many we've worked with in the past, how many things we've seen and learned from our own journey. You know, as an agency, we've actually started our second um, company on brand. And so we're really working oh, really? to practice what we preach. Yeah. And, you know, that just helps us have even more empathy for what's going on on the other side of the table. And we spend so much time in the food and beverage ecosystem, about 15 food and beverage trade shows a year, that we really understand all of the components that are necessary to be aligned for a food or beverage entrepreneur to have success. You know, it doesn't just start and end with design, certainly great product formulation, R&D, but then brokers, retailers, distributors, private equity groups, you know, fundraising, consumer experience, digital touch points, like all of these things come together. And so... Because we interact with so much of the community, we've been able to really gain a holistic understanding of what businesses need. A lot of it starts with smart brand strategy and positioning. And from there, we're able to help other entrepreneurs with the more tactical, tangible elements that you were talking about earlier of you know holding a brand and, and feeling a brand, that, that brand in hand moment, aka packaging. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about design is that you have to become something of an expert on all the different products or brands or companies you design for. But then also when you're an agency side rather than in-house, you also get that experience across a lot of different brands, right? So a lot of people launching a company, it's usually their first time running a business often. Um, sometimes they go back for a second run, but often a lot of our clients are on their kind of first entrepreneurial go. But then it's also often their first dip into CPG because maybe they were off doing something else and then they discovered this passion, right? So the fact that we get to work with so many brands in this space and see so many different models from like billion dollar companies to tiny little startups to local regional companies to national companies to frozen to shelf stable to all the different options. I think that's part of what makes you like most likely a really great mentor is because you've seen so much, right? Whereas they're 
laser focused on their specific solution to whatever problem they're trying to solve. And you get to see the whole system a little bit, kind of like take a higher level view and kind of guide them along the way. So while they hire people like us for creative branding strategy, whatever kind of stuff, I feel like they get so much more because, you know, we have a focus and we have so much experience in that industry. Yeah, particularly when folks like you and I are as curious as we are, we want to know a lot more about the businesses and just the thing that we touch. And that gives us vision and foresight and the ability to see around corners. And yeah, it's all the things that you've said. And and that's where the, the mentoring has been really rewarding because we're also, we're very eager to learn it all, not know it all. And therefore, you know, there are things that as we work with these different entrepreneurs that become, you know, valuable sources of knowledge for us on the next one and the next one. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, I love it. Just like there's, you never get bored because there's always an interesting challenge, but there's also like something new and fun to learn with every single project and every stage of a client's business. So it's super cool. But you also just mentioned that your launch, you've uh, interact has had two of your own kind of brands that you've launched, which I didn't realize that. And my, one of my previous guests, another Fred, but Fred Haberman, who you might know from Haberman agency, which is a PR communications kind of marketing agency. But he actually has his own brand too called Freak Flag Organics, which is pretty cool. So we were, yeah, we were geeking out on, on that for a little bit, like why he started it, how he started it, et cetera. But tell me about the brands that you have with through Interact. So when the pandemic first hit us, like many sort of agencies or service providers, um, the light sort of went dark for a couple months there. And we decided we wanted to do something with our extra time as a studio so that we were going to invest in starting a brand. Again, we've got a lot of contacts in different places, manufacturing, brokers, retailers, etc. So we brought together a couple of key partners and said, let's build something here. So what we did was we built a brand called Cleanly, C-L-E-A-N-L-I. And it's an elevated hand sanitizer brand. Um, obviously, that was sort of the soup du jour Very timely. at that time. <laughs> but what we were really focused on was creating a brand and a product that was additive. Everything on the market at that time was all about subtractive, killing germs, sterile, all those sorts of things. But it wasn't really a part of people's welcomed daily ritual. It was something that we all had to do. There were no benefits to it like aromatherapy, essential oils, uh, moisturizing components. And so we wanted to take this moment that was so framed up in negativity and challenges and try to create uh, a positive spin around it and almost use like beauty and personal care as influences, which led us to, you know, the sense, the essential oils, the, the misting component, the vitamin E and all of the, and the way that we really talked about the brand and the, what the brand stood for was, which was essentially like taking care of your hands just as well as you take care of your face or, or some of these other components of, of self-care. And so that was our first iteration as a studio. That's sort of come and gone. Obviously, um, that wave is sort of over. But what we're launching now in Q4 of this year will be a elevated mushroom-inspired uh, beauty brand called Elderflower. And so it'll have sort of facial creams and different oils and sort of nighttime routine components and elements to it and completely different from the work, aesthetically speaking, from what we do in food and bev. You know, 
it's like food photography and all of this stuff. And, and you want to sort of be accessible, but this is really about speaking to a niche audience and being elevated and premium. And it's been a really great opportunity for the office to sort of embark on a new creative challenge. Yeah, that's cool. Cause I mean, that's the, what a lot of creatives are a little bit worried about, about niching is a, you know, maybe the economy turns and all of a sudden you have no clients, but also just the kind of creative stagnation that they fear might happen if all you're doing is designing the same thing over and over, which I feel like stranger and stranger proves that wrong because they pretty much just only do alcohol slash wine, whatever kind of bottles and they crush it. They just like, it's the amazing work. So obviously you can stay creative in one focus, but to your point though, creatives love a unique challenge, right? So giving the team something that's like just a little bit different, but it's kind of same, same, but different for them to stretch their mind on is, is really cool. Yeah. And it is a challenge because we're our own client at this point, which means that it's a lot harder to create guardrails for yourself from the outset. You want to dream, you want to leave room for possibility. But I think we've learned a valuable lesson, again, putting ourselves in the entrepreneur shoes to then go back to more of our client work and say, you know, take some of those learnings along for the ride and build that into our process. Yeah. Nice. Well, speaking of being in the entrepreneur's shoes, I know that kind of you help run the agency. I think, um, I can't remember if you were on the original founding team or if you came on later as a co-founder or something like that, but you're a partner, right? That's what it is. Yep. So I came on as essentially co-founder with my business partner. He bought it from his dad. Great. Okay. So yeah. So you're kind of help run the business, but then also you did the Seth Godin's MBA program and a program, another program I've kept my eye on for a while, the Yale Creative Leaders Experience, because I've been deeply involved with AIGA for a long time and I always see them like partnering with Yale or I think they did one with Harvard for a little bit or whatever on the kind of creative leaders training stuff. So two cool programs. I haven't done either of those. I did the Seth Godin's marketing seminar though. So I'm a little bit familiar with some of his style of teaching, but just out of curiosity, what did you think of those programs? What were like some major takeaways for you? I'm generally just very interested in leadership and how it helps us do better creative work. Doing great design is not the hard part. Facilitating it is oftentimes, as well as like sort of leading it through clients' businesses, because there's a lot that we take for granted and that we have to spell out for them. So those two courses that you listed out were things that I thought were important, just my own development and to the agency's development. Alt MBA is really interesting. It's completely different than traditional higher education, where higher education is more top-down learning. There's a professor or a subject matter expert, and you go to learn the course materials and all these things. This almost like flips it upside down. So there's actually no subject matter expert. There's no one person that everyone's learning from. It's much more self-reflective. It's much more group-oriented. And to me, focuses on the soft skills of leadership more than anything. Yeah, love Seth Godin, but I do think it's a misnomer to call it an alt MBA. Um, There are a lot of MBA components that are not touched on, but it does focus on the soft skills of leadership, which which are critical. The Yale and AIGA program was remarkable. It's like a week long course. It's on campus. Um, I got to meet Michael Beirut and a handful of other like, you know, preeminent design thinkers. And it touches everything. It is focused around creative leadership, but you understand how to work with data. You understand like the importance of consumers, org charts, communication styles, public speaking, 
it's really just a crash course. And, you know, you have to apply, you have to be accepted. It's a small cohort, maybe somewhere between 20 and 40 people for a class. And, and you get to meet some really interesting folks from all walks of life. You know, there were people from Google and people from the New York Times, and there were journalist folks, and there were people from the financial industry and real estate backgrounds and just all sorts of arena because creative is so far reaching that you sometimes forget you know, healthcare is another one, just how many um, wonderful professionals there are in, in all of these different fields and industries. Yeah, that's great. I kind of wish design programs where you're going to learn graphic design, branding, whatever, that they would teach more of this kind of stuff in those programs. Because I think almost all creative professionals or, or graphic designers, at least, um, but writers and other people too, regardless of whether they launch their own agency or run their own agency, they often at least freelance or do some other stuff on the side, right? It's, it's like, I would guess that it's almost like 90% plus people who do some sort of like small businessy thing or whatever on the side of maybe their full-time job or they start an agency. Yet we get no actual business training in design <laughs> school, even though that is the case. So I love that all these programs, more accessible programs exist these days because sure, you could go back and get a full MBA. But for most designers, that would be a huge expense and complete overkill <laughs> because MBAs are mostly designed for you to climb corporate ladders, not necessarily, they're not all designed around like running your own small business or something like that. So like these alt MBAs, or I also did this program called 10,000 Small Businesses. That's kind of a partnership with Babson College, which is I think oh, cool. supposedly yeah. the number one entrepreneur university in the country or maybe the world, I'm not sure. But then they partnered with, I'm terrible, but I always forget which big bank, so I'm not even going to try, but a big <laughs> bank they kind of funded it as part of their kind of give back to the world to support small businesses. But anyway, I think more than 10,000 small business owners have gone through that at this point, but it sounds kind of similar to the Yale Creative Leader, but I'll without the kind of it. design spin. But you go through a, I want to say it's like a six-month program or something like that where you do a few well, if you're in, in the national program, they also have some local programs, but you do some a mix of, in the national program, some on-site stuff where they bring you out to Babson and you do some work in cohorts and small groups Super and cool. stuff like that. And then they do some individual work where you're kind of doing some of that self-reflected, but they also mm. have some <laughs> teachers, subject matter experts there too that kind of like guide you through it. But anyway, I love that there's all these more accessible programs out there like that because I think most creatives could get a lot of value out of learning the business side, not only because they do some of their own kind of freelance or small business work, but because most of the time we're also working with and supporting business owners or people in businesses. So the more knowledge that we have to be able to build empathy slash connect the dots slash understand how our design is going to fit in their business strategy, the better, right? So absolutely. I imagine... I mean I think design is a tool for business because if you do your job right and ultimately they, you know, have seen an increase in revenue, that's a direct result of better connecting with consumers. And, you know, there's a lot of studios out there, a lot of great ones that talk about winning design awards. But for us, that's a conversation that we're not really interested in focusing on design effectiveness awards. Yes. But, you know, the creative for creative sake is, I think a little self-indulgent at times. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because a lot of the quote unquote award winning work you see 
not to bash the die line because I love them, but like you see a lot of stuff on the die line that's like, wow, that's really beautiful and conceptual. And then it would never actually work in the marketplace <laughs> or it's not designed for legal standards or something. So to your yeah. point, like I think a lot of creatives do the creative work because it's a fun tool for expression. But in reality, if you're really going to be in branding or design, it should be work that actually helps solve the problems or um, helps reach the goals or whatever else the company is trying to face. That's exactly right. Definitely. We're, we're in the business of solving problems visually. And I am grateful for the die lines of the world because it pushes the envelope aesthetically. I just would never want us to be the tip of that spear. You know, I'd, I'd rather us sort of calculate and be more strategic. And, and I appreciate that the envelope pushers out there in the world, there are many, many, many of them. But if we can sort of cherry pick all the best things and then bring those to our clients' tables and really use it to help them connect to the consumer, then I think that's the winning formula. Totally. It should be effective first and foremost, and then beautiful after that. And sometimes beauty is how you, you know, make yes. it effective in certain categories, right? That's like number one, like maybe in personal care slash beauty products, like it's less about communication in some of those categories than it is in the food and beverage world, for example. But still, you know, you're using that as a tool to move the needle and cut through the clutter and so on and so forth. So another one just for anyone out there listening and wanting to do more kind of business training that I'll just mention here is Lift Economy also has an interesting kind of like alt MBA program where it's teaching more of like, you know, sustainable, regenerative kind of inclusive business models in something of like a cohort experience that I've heard good things about. So people can check that out too. But with that said, let's flip into Interact now. So it's fun hearing a little bit about your background and geeking out as fellow brand CPG folks. But tell me what you all are working on specifically at Interact. Like you already said food and beverage is what you do a lot, but kind of what are your core principles, philosophies, ethos that you live and work by there? Handful. So we do a lot of brand strategy at Interact. That's how we do our best creative work is by really understanding that that underlying foundation. So our director of strategy, Adrian, is phenomenal and, and the rest of our team in, in helping to simplify to amplify. So oftentimes, like our consumers have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to stories that they could tell, you know, family founded, bootstrapped, you know, it's sustainable, eco-friendly, clean, organic, like... You know, there's just a myriad of things. And, and so what we really try to do is drill down into what really makes them special and sort of boil the ocean to get to that sort of like key thing, that core thematic element that represents the brand in general. Is our brand about magic? Is our brand about love? Is it about joy? Is it about adventure? Whatever it is. And then figure out how to amplify from there and make it distinctive. So that's one of our sort of upfront strategic principles. Other ethos that we have is that people don't read, they recognize. And I think this is really important to remember in packaging in particular. There's oftentimes a, a big mistake of entrepreneurs to want to put every single claim on their pack in the hopes that, well, someone somewhere will resonate with some of these things. But it really like undermines the brand, uh, points to the fact that you don't know your consumer, that there's a lack of confidence in some of the things that you should care about. And so um, what we really focus on is is just creating highly recognizable brand elements, both for brand recognition, to make them unmistakable, as well as to um, use 
you know, sort of visual languages to express a lot more. There's a reason why people say a picture is worth a thousand words. And then other things that we like to do with entrepreneurs is encourage them to continue to be brave and take risks. We love the quote that the opposite of bravery isn't cowardice, but conformity. And there is a lot of conforming conventional design in the food and beverage world. Seems to be a general playbook that people always follow. And it's given birth to this mantra of challenge the category, not the consumer, which means let's not simply just be different for different sake. That's not the point of this, but let's figure out what everyone else takes for granted and then find a way to flip that on its head and use it to our advantage. And a, an example would be a company like Boom Chicken Pop when they did their big uh, sort of overhaul. They looked at the cat category of popcorn and everyone was focused on showing images of popcorn. Well, no one's popcorn looks any different than the other. We all know what it looks like. We don't need to be told what it looks like. And so what they did was they leaned into attitude and personality with the Boom Chicka Pop name, a very distinctive, unique color palette. And it just helped communicate a fresh new story in that space where everyone else suddenly felt commoditized. And I think that was a big part of their success. And it's an example of that sort of mantra in work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, I love the simplify, amplify statement. I've seen some other agencies like Planet Propaganda just put that as like their homepage graphic or whatever, because it is so important that if if you're trying to be everything to everybody, you're going to be nobody, <laughs> nothing to everybody, basically, because That's right. you're not carving out a niche, you're not planting your flag, you're not making it clear, and people can only remember a few things, right? So. If your brand is about all the things, then nobody's going to remember it. But if your brand plants a flag and, you know, we're the sugar-free sauce company or, you know, whatever, just like pick something that you're kind of all about for hopefully for a good reason too. Yep. Then it makes everything so much easier because you can communicate more quickly. You can pitch to retailers. You can understand your consumer. You can build better social graphic. Like it just makes everything easier when you pick a focus, right? That's awesome. So one of the things that's uh, different uh, between Interact versus Modern Species is Interact's bigger and you work also with some bigger clients. Uh, Modern Species focuses primarily on like the mission-driven, organic, regenerative, fair trade kind of space. But Interact does that, but also (laughs) worked with like companies like Hot Pockets, for example. So I'm curious, like I, I never actually worked in a big agency on those big like Pepsi level brands or something like that. Although uh, my design director that I just brought in has some of that experience. So, so nice. I'm looking forward to learning from her in that <laughs> space. But, but I've always been on like the small, passionate, you know, whatever founder scrappy companies like granted, you know, we've worked with some bigger in that space, like organic Valley or something like that, but still it's like a different culture, right? A different ethos. So what are the kind of the differences on your side? Like when working with some of those bigger mainstream clients who maybe have bigger budgets and maybe are a little bit more savvy, maybe need less education on the category, but also possibly have like more conservative board or other people they have to convince to do something big. But what do you feel like are the kind of differences between working with those big mainstream or like the smaller niche or mission-driven projects? Yeah, it was, a, it was an eye-opening experience. You know, our foray into working with blue chip brands or, or enterprise companies is, um, is a new one. It's fledgling. We got the opportunity because we actually worked with Nestle to create a brand from scratch for them first. So Ooh, we have nice. a reputation because of all of our work in the entrepreneurial world. 
where bigger strategics have come to us to work with their incubators or accelerators to try to do that for themselves. And so we built a brand that's in market right now called Nestle Rallies. It's a refrigerated nut butter ball enrobed in chocolate product. Sits next to things like Perfect Bar and Cleo Bars and, and, and very progressive for a company like Nestle. Totally clean ingredient list, again, refrigerated, so there's no need for preservatives, you know, natural plant proteins um, from nut butters and things of that nature, healthy indulgence. And so it was really fun to work with them. They basically had the R&D white space and then said, we need, every, we need a brand around this. So we identified core audience, positioning statements, tone of voice, verbal identity, naming, then brand identity, packaging design, social and launch materials, etc. And it was after we had done that, that people at the main headquarters of Nestle got wind of our work. And we're kind of intrigued by a more boutique style agency that's mostly worked in natural products with entrepreneurs in emerging and challenging categories and, and said, what would happen if we gave them a shot working on Hot Pockets, a brand that was in dire need of relevance because it had always catered to the person that purchases Hot Pockets for the home, but not the consumer, which is actually more of like what they deemed a 13-year-old gamer. So that was the sort of the problem um, that they came to us with. And it was a really interesting one. You know, I think we've di- we did some phenomenal design. There's some stuff on the cutting room floor that I still think is really cool and really rad. But what you learn quickly is with an organization that big, your presentations are going to be socialized without you. So everything needs to be airtight. The rationale behind everything is almost more important than the work. People are buying off on strategy. They're trying to de-risk the business. These, you know, these revenue shares are already so huge that, um, you know, there's a tendency to want to be extra sure that we're making the right moves. So insight work, category audits, all of these sorts of things are really strong components that serve as the underpinnings for all the creative that gets, that sits on top. So Nestle has a center of uh, design excellence. So they have an internal creative team. So we would work with their head of design of North America. We would do like internal check-ins and then we would present back to them and the marketing team or the brand team for Hot Pockets. Then they would talk to the sales team. They would talk to the president of that division. Then they'd talk to the CMO and Nestle. A lot of layers. (laughs) A lot of layers. They even have to go to Switzerland where the strategic business unit is located. And so there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. But knowing that the work is going to go through that rigmarole forces you to be really honest with every single decision that you're making. And can you tie it back to a really sound rational or rationale, excuse me. And, you know, for me, I find that mental exercise really rewarding because that's the most stimulating piece is like figuring out how to put the puzzle together yeah, that's and, cool. and enacting change in a very, very big organization. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think a lot of creatives like working in that way, like having a rationale, like we, you know, for sure. the creatives that are doing more for creative sake before, but I think most of us like having some reasons behind what we're doing it. It helps us justify it, it helps us kind of narrow in and create guardrails and then vet what, which ideas to show and so on and so forth. But the smaller brands often can't afford to spend the time or money doing all that work up front, whether it's consumer research or testing or even just running it through a gabillion layers of people. And there was um, so a lot that, of That's testing. like one of the benefits of working with the big boys is that they're willing to spend that money and it's almost like 
required that they spend that money because like you said, they're risk averse to some point. Like even though they've got gobs of money to spend doing anything with Hot Pockets costs gobs of money, right? Because they're everywhere. So it's like a much bigger risk. And Yeah. You know, the sleeves that you put around a Hot Pocket to heat it up, it has a name. It's called a susceptor. We had done some really cool designs um, to make it really this this cool unexpected moment once you took it out of the box. And then they went off to like get ready for production. And then they realized it was going to cost them a million more dollars in ink because the amount of ink coverage that we had on it was so different from the previous one that they then had to go fight, you know, like the business unit for that additional spend. And there were all sorts of conversations that ensued afterwards as a result of, is it worth it or is it not? And what's the ROI on it and things of that nature. So, yeah. Now, did they always, ask you to try to calculate that ROI or do they have team members internally that are like, I think I know no, how to we, crunch know, these the, numbers. It's like increase brand pleasure by 10% uh, equals this value and like do some algorithm or something that crunches the Yeah, numbers. unfortunately that is not on us, but I will say Nestle is a really great partner where we had strategy folks on their end, brand managers and design leaders having very holistic conversations and weighing everything. It's not as formulaic as like, all right, put it in a Google spreadsheet and we'll weigh the you know, the brand loyalty engagement score for this or that, but they certainly, you know, are cognizant of how does this benefit the consumer experience? And if we can increase that, then then we have an easier time of, of making a case for additional spend. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think natural products started out just kind of rebelling against mainstream, right? But then as natural, organic, whatever becomes more desired and those brands start growing, they start looking to mainstream to like learn how they scaled and then vice versa. I think a lot of the growth in the industry over the past, let's say decade or so, probably maybe a little bit longer, but um, has been driven by kind of natural organic, et cetera, and these kind of smaller niche brands. So mainstream companies have started either buying some of those brands or trying to launch their own or trying to bring some of that kind of scrappy ethos into their models. So it's this interesting like whirlpool of (laughs) influence where it's like, you know, breaking the chain and then like learning from the system and then the system learning from the change makers. (laughs) It's just kind of like big mixed, mixed up pot. Like when you go to trade shows now, it's, you know, you'll see giant international corporations at some of these natural product shows and you'll still see the tiny little scrappy people but it's kind of interesting the space we're in right now where there's this push and pull between mainstream and smaller brands hey y'all we're gonna take a quick break so one of our community members can tell you about her new course offering are you a business or marketing professional interested in shifting your strategies and actions to be more sustainable The Green Marketing Academy offers education, customized training, and certification for businesses and marketing teams who are working to build a more ethical, transparent, accessible, and inclusive marketing plan. Visit our website at thegreenmarketingacademy.com to learn more or follow along with us on social media at The Green Marketing Academy. Now let's get back to our conversation. Yeah, there's a constant push and pull. And, you know, I think historically speaking, we look at big food is bad and the little guys is good. But to your point, big food is acquiring a lot of these brands and applying scale to it in ways that they never could before. A client of ours, Orgain, was recently purchased by Nestle Health Sciences. And Orgain is a mostly organic nutritional supplement company that was started by Andrew, the founder, after he was recovering from cancer. 
right? And so he is in essence, through partnership with Nestle, democratizing access to affordable organic fruits and vegetables and, and products that can do a lot of good. And, and so it's, uh, it's never easy to just cast sides. And there's a lot of gray space in between. Yeah, or another example, um, I can't remember when they started doing this. I want to say like three plus years ago, or maybe more time flies. But like General Mills, I think has been working a lot with Organic Valley to try to increase the organic acreage across the country because you know, organic became in such hot demand that there wasn't enough organic, there weren't enough organic farms in the US to supply. So that's where you know, farms in Mexico or even Canada or everywhere around the world started filling in that gap. But of course, like part of the goal of organic is sustainability. So of course we want that here on our own land in the US and, you know, to be able to increase the acreage, et cetera. So there are companies out there that are partnering, you know, giant international companies like General Mills partnering with experts in organic agriculture, like Organic Valley to, to say, hey, let's let's squash the beef, so to speak, and let's figure out how we work together to grow this industry. And, you know, some of the hardcore organic folks are up in arms about like, why would anyone partner with General Mills and so on and so forth. There's always like this political thing going on. But to your point, (laughs) like it's really hard to draw that line, even like Walmart, which I was uh, a recent guest, Sadra from No Evil Food said like when they first started supplying their kind of vegan, kind of rebellious plant-based foods into Walmart, a lot of their employees were pissed about that because they're like, this is kind of like the opposite of the ethos we want. We don't want to support companies like that. But Sager was like, yeah, but it's about access. Like, don't we want people who have to shop at Walmart because it's the closest store to them? Don't we want them to be able to have access to better food as well? And it's this kind of push-pull that's kind of difficult in the industry to figure out what that balance is. And, you know, there's going to be extreme people on both sides, but... Probably, in my opinion, it's always somewhere in the middle is the answer. Like both sides are right and both sides are wrong. (laughs) Totally. And everyone's everyone's got a story and an angle. And, and, you know, even talking about Walmart, I believe they are the largest seller of organic goods in the United States. You you think about a very conventional retailer and they're actually helping provide access to a lot of these products. Yeah, I think it goes back and forth maybe between like Costco and Walmart. It's it's like the (laughs) biggest sellers of organic. So it's like... It's not something most people are organic or people new to organic would think. They'd assume it's whole foods or something, but it's not. Right, exactly. To kind of flip it over to the more niche brand sides, I know you do a lot of work with those companies too, like Good Pop and Archer and stuff. So can you talk about some of the, like a case study or two of how you've helped some niche brands nail their branding and scale the brand? Yeah, I'm particularly proud of some of our recent work with Good Pop. So Good Pop is a... Frozen novelty company that makes popsicles and other other products based out of Austin, Texas. They have an awesome philanthropic component to their company. So they have sort of a good pledge element to their brand where they are sort of donating funds and, and matching contributions. It started by Daniel Getz nearly a decade ago. He bootstrapped the company himself and has done a really good job of making his presence in the natural category and sort of like reinventing that space to be really clean. Um, I believe all of their products at this point are dairy free and they have some really great indulgent, like, you know, orange sickle bars and creamy fudge bars and things of that nature. So we started working with in 2019, first time ever working with an agency, which meant there was an opportunity for us um, to help educate our client 
in terms of ways that they could really enhance their presence in natural, but also go after a new distribution channel in conventional. And the landscape look a lot different in these two places. So when you go to a Walmart or a Target, you're coming up against um, national brands for the most part. So Outshine, the Popsicle brand, Johnny Pops, a, a private label has a big play there. And they're all colorful, all saturated. And when we look at Good Pops, it's a white-based packaging and design. So said kind of like cute, healthy, and better for you in that context. But in the world of natural, where they're coming from, private label was continuing to eat away. White was used by a handful of brands. And so one thing we always ask ourselves again is like people don't read, they recognize white is sort of recognizable for our brand, but it's also equally generic. So what other brand elements or assets are we going to bring to the table to help it be more distinctive, have higher recall, you know, just feel more premium because it is, uh, it has a higher price point. So let's use design to reinforce those things. So we did a refresh, launched it into market, and then they saw a 40% increase in sales year over year, which is pretty phenomenal because they were doing, you know, somewhere between 20 and 40 million in, in revenue. So you know, you apply 40% on, on top of whatever their base was. And, and that's a that's a pretty big impact for a brand that could use every penny to continue to gain distribution and launch innovation. And I'm proud to say that the design system that we built for them was straightforward enough and was easy to understand that they have now launched ice cream sandwiches and like a Klondike bar like product all on their own internal. And it looks great. Like oh, nice. us as an agency that's out partner, awesome. <laughs> we're like, you guys did a wonderful job, like kudos to you. And that's what we love to see is just like a little bit of self-reliance on our client's part. So they don't constantly have to come back to us because that's a big spend on them. And, you know, we want to, we ultimately want to see them control their own destiny. Yeah. And that's always a scary moment when you hand off this <laughs> baby that you've um, helped bring into yeah. the world, AKA a brand. And then hand it off to the client and you're like crossing your fingers like, please, please don't mess this up. Please don't mess this yeah. up. But, you know, yeah, that's great yeah, that yeah. they were able to carry it through and that the system held up, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we work with clients in the same regard where it's like you get the thing started and they take it over and, and that's awesome and it's great. And most of the time, hopefully they do a good job. But like sometimes <laughs> you're just like, oh, God, you kind of want to like ask them for the files back so you can clean it up or something like that. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. Let me just get my fingers on that one more time. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's cool. So what do you feel like are, since we're both designers or creatives, like what do you feel like are some of the design trends you're seeing right now kind of playing out in the CPG market? Bloomberg has been doing a lot to cover the space right now. So, you know, blanding was sort of a big design trope where, you know, we're sucking the life out of these brands all using Sansara. Fashion was going through like a big problem. And so I, I think you saw a lot of that, particularly in the last seven to five years in the D2C realm where it felt like there was just sort of this aesthetic rinse, wash and repeat that was being applied to everything. Now there's the adorkables trend, which is very much tied to Gen Z. High saturation of color, lots of personality, tongue in cheek, and, you know, all about joy and, and being self-effacing and things of that nature. And I think there's a lot of interesting, again, that things that are happening there, we're very cognizant that you can't just simply pick up that palette and just apply it to, to brands haphazardly. Different consumers have different needs, different categories have different pieces of context. You know, you do that to beef jerky and suddenly you look like a clown in a room, but maybe it works in craft beer. So there's all sorts of realms, but we're seeing a lot of that. 
And I think more than anything, we're, we're in this sort of time and phase where companies are coming to us more than ever saying, we want to really find our own DNA. And that's always a really awesome ask, but also a very difficult challenge because it means sort of reinventing the aesthetic wheel every single time for each brand, but ultimately creates the greatest level of authenticity. So um, those are a few things that I think we've been seeing and playing with a lot more experimental typography these days. So many great type foundries, anything that you're seeing on your end. Yeah. Th- I mean, those are some fun ones that have come <laughs> up in conversations with some of our clients for sure. Like for me, I, I, I didn't really love the kind of brainless movement by which I yeah. mean, like it makes sense in some contexts, like uh, what's it called? Muji that Japanese like clothing company or whatever, where they're just trying to like cut out the middleman, not spend a bunch on like designing fancy brands or whatever, but just bring you good quality at a lower cost. Yeah. I get that. And then like the D2C world picked it up. And the next thing you know, every hipster brand in the world was like, like no ownable elements, no nothing, all like lowercase, you know, sans serif, like super minimal stuff. And, and, and I get it. Like it looked cool for a little bit. So everyone copied it, but, but I didn't really go along with that one. But the Dorkables is a fun one to play with, right? It's like, there's interesting ways to pull that off. Some people go all in and there's like, everything's adorned with stickers and badges and stuff. I was just looking at a agency. I want to, I want to say they're called goodness or something in Australia that had a few adorable looking brands in their portfolio. But anyway, one thing that popped into my mind was just kind of copycat stuff that goes on. For example, like you, you just see these waves and trends of, of for a little while, a lot of natural brands like healthier food companies wanted to switch from their kind of hippie roots and then like shift into this like clean white space, everything like, like Justin's nut butter and different things like that, because that helped some of those companies go into mainstream. Right. So the next thing, you know, everyone's jumping on like these white packages and stuff like you were talking about good pop. And that's great for a little bit when you are the one white package in a sea of like brown craft paper or whatever, <laughs> like it helped you stand out from the other kind of natural organic. But then once everything went to white, then it was like, well, what's left now? So I've been seeing brands kind of own color again in a new way, but instead of going with the earth tones of the previous generation of kind of color usage and natural organic kind of products, now everyone's going for these more vibrant, colorful colors, kind Bronzo of like block out like a shelf and have example. like a rainbow on shelf yep. or something. Yeah. Yep. So you see people just really owning um, color in the space now, but of course, once every brand is just like really owning color, then, you know, I imagine we'll see a shift towards something else again. Like you're starting to see some brands hit the shelf, with just like all black packaging or something like that, just to like stand out in a different way. But, but it kind of comes and goes in waves like that, where it's not always, you want it to be authentic to the brand, right? Like, especially as a creative helping that brand, but some brands are doing it just because just because, right? Because everyone else is doing it, so I'm going to do it. Or because everyone else is doing that, I'm going to do this. Um, So I find it super interesting when brands ignore all that (laughs) noise and say, you know, I don't care about white packaging, black packaging, colorful packaging, whatever. I'm just going to find my true voice. And then they just come out with something that you haven't seen before. And that's that's really cool space, uh, I think, to work in. So I'd love to see more brands do that kind of go down that path rather than just, Hey, that seems to be working for everyone else. Let me jump on that bandwagon. And that's that element of, you know, cowardice we were talking about earlier. Cowardice is conformity, you know? And so, yeah, exactly. 
But with that said, I think there's, you know, different livers you can pull of like, like you were mentioning typography, it kind of goes in waves of imagery. Like for a little while, maybe it was like illustration was the thing. And then now food photography is coming back, but soon, soon that'll everyone will have the same food photography on their package. So then it'll like have to shift into something else. But I love just kind of like seeing where the market goes with that. With that said though, what do you feel like as someone who geeks out on branding in the CPG world? What does the future of CPG itself look like to you? Well, I was just in Brooklyn at a DTC conference called The Lead. It was really fascinating being in that room. We work mostly with omni-channel brands or retail-specific brands, not digitally native and digitally only brands. But that table is being reset by a lot of market conditions right now. Customer acquisition costs, you know, performance marketing costs, all of these things. The future of CPG, I think, is one of personalization. There are more companies that I've run across over the last 18 months that have really remarkable like VIP programs and VIP groups for their consumers that get access to very unique products. So one of my favorite examples is a brand called Oats Overnight run by Brian Tate. They sell incredible, essentially overnight oats online. And they have a Facebook VIP group where they do limited releases too. So Fruity Pebbles flavor, uh, peanut butter chocolate cacao flavor, you know, blueberry muffin, etc. This is stuff that never goes into retail that they do in limited batches that create excitement and fervor amongst their, their crowd. Um, there's another supplement brand called Obvi, O-B-V-I, that does a similar practice. And to me, it's just so interesting the way that they're almost what I would term like a user-generated brand, a UGB. These are companies that create a community that work to facilitate that community and, and grow it and then listen to those community members around what flavors do you want? What products should we create? Like, And really allowing consumers to have a hand on the wheel with the brand. And I think that a lot of companies are going to be looking at that. It requires you to either have nimble commands or to self-manufacture to be able to sort of like pivot. But it's it reminds me a lot of breweries. Like you can go into a brewery and try a bunch of interesting things on tap. They'll take that feedback. They'll do that form of consumer research. And then the one that gets the greatest response, cool, we'll launch that as a seasonal. And then maybe it can, becomes a core product. And there's just a feedback loop with consumers that companies like General Mills or Pepsi or even Nestle pay hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year doing consumer research just to try to understand the consumer. Yet we have these D2C CPG brands that know their consumer so well. You know, SMS marketing is a big rise because it's the most, you know, personal form of communication. And I think companies that understand that avenue are the future of CPG. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. I hadn't thought about that one. But yeah, now that you mention it, I think that is the opportunity of D2C, right? Is owning that relationship, which basically just means collecting data <laughs> much quicker, faster, et cetera, because you're only going to get so much data from spins kind of third party through layers of, you know, people passing off data between retailers and et cetera. And there's going to be some insights there, but not as, as many. You can go and do kind of demoing at retail stores and that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. definitely a great way to get some feedback. But how many of those are you, can you do 
on a daily, weekly, whatever, monthly basis. But then D to C, it's like people are buying your product, hopefully every day, multiple times a day, and you get them in your email list. You kind of do experiments online. You see what they're buying, what they're not buying, and you can do all sorts of experiments to really learn as much about the customer as quickly as possible. So that's really cool. Good note there. Yeah, I was I was trying to think of how I would answer that one and I didn't prepare ahead of time. <laughs> so off the top of my head, I was thinking that uh, collaborations, like this just popped into my mind. I've oh, been yeah. seeing more and more collaborations. And like you said, the, the customizable kind of limited run, kind of learn about your consumer path that was somewhat like brewing where you have a bunch of experimental stuff and whatever sticks you kind of put in the main main lineup. But similar to that, like I, I think I saw a lot of collaborations happening in the craft beer world for a little while, but that's starting to bleed over a lot more into the CPG world where you're getting like Miyoko's partnering with Renewal Mill or you're getting like Regrained partnering with Kerry Foods or, you know, some other brand. And it's just more and more of that kind of co-branded stuff. And I, I feel like historically you'd mainly see it in like small ways like Annie's mac and cheese would say made with real cheese and maybe have the organic valley logo on it but that was like less of a full true partnership i think and more like they didn't design the product together as far as i know maybe they did but but it was more of a hey look it's legit cheese and from a brand from a brand you know and like leaning on some of that equity or like tabasco's done a lot of that like you know tabasco little bottle like on a, a box of cheese it's or something like that to show that there's that collaboration but I feel like it's becoming a more meaningful, deeper kind of collaboration process with a lot of brands, especially I think as some of like the, let's say, upcycled food movement or regenerative agriculture or whatever grows, there's only so much quantity or so much knowledge in some of those movements that some of the bigger brands kind of have to partner <laughs> with a smaller brand or something like that to be able to work in that space because otherwise it would just take them so long to get up and running. I'm all for it. I like I like a good collaboration and excited to see what people come up with. But. They're usually delicious and sometimes unexpected. Yeah. And we're pretty much at time here, but uh, one question left on the list I wanted to spend or touch on a little bit is I know that like modern species who's obsessed with sustainability, I know Interact kind of has some kind of efforts in sustainability as well. So can you talk a little bit about like how you all kind of implement or integrate sustainability or impact or whatever into your work? Yeah. So we're very fortunate to have an amazing team member at Interact. Her name is Valerie Hawks, and she is our head of production and sustainability. So she's really a shepherd inside our four walls of keeping us up to date on best practices, the temperature of what's going on within the world of sustainability, greenwashing, ESG, all of these like wonderful components. So She's really been great at sort of like being a catalyst for that conversation internally. And then she serves as the front line for a lot of our new partnerships. We'll bring her into the beginning of um, calls. Not only are we working to understand who are the print partners and, and, you know, where does their packaging come from to see if there's sort of wins there, but what is the company doing that might be sustainable? How are we integrating that into their core principles? What's the language in which we use to talk about that. Is it sustainability first? Does it come secondary? You know, think about a company like Tesla, they're really based on performance first and foremost and sustainability and the green element is sort of secondary to that. But then there are other companies that that are all about sustainability being first, you know, climate friendly snacks. 
coming from uh, the good people at Moonshot that are doing these like really interesting crackers. So like, there's all of these different levers and things. And so Val and our team is an amazing thought partner to us and our clients of, of helping us navigate these elements, as well as to improve our client's standing in terms of let's think about the recycling. Let's actually break down the components. Can they recycle these things? Are they greenwashing by saying that you can, but in actuality, like it won't work through, you know, the stream as it currently stands. So she's just been phenomenal to um, our evolution as a company to stay relevant on these sorts of matters because they matter. Yeah. I think not only do they matter in a real practical sense for the future of humanity and the planet or whatever, but I think consumers, obviously all the data shows that consumers are more and more interested in buying sustainable products, sustainable packaging, or, you know, whatever else. So they don't always know what that means, <laughs> but they're interested in it. So to have more people that are out there kind of figuring out the right way to do it and the right way to communicate it instead of just saying, okay, so cool, we used 2% recycled content in this package. Now we're a sustainable brand, right? <laughs> like some of that kind of greenwashing that happens out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's good to know that you're you have some checks and balance in there and you're helping push the world forward. Nice. Well, I've held you for too long. I imagine we could keep geeking out for much longer, but I know we've got busy schedules to get back to, but I appreciate you spending some time geeking out on design, branding, CPG, and all other uh, fun things that we chatted about. And thanks for doing what you do at Interact and helping brands find their DNA. My pleasure. Thanks for the platform. It's wonderful to be able to... uh to talk about these things with you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Fred or Interact, go to interactbrands.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. <laughs>